Well, not only do we have a few visitors with us this morning, but today is Veterans Day. And so we want to recognize any veterans that are with us this morning. And uh, as I picture some of you that have served throughout the years, um, it would be really neat, but I don't know that it's physically possible uh, because people have changed over the years, but it would really be neat to see you in your original uniform, complete with the medals and the, the crisp, shiny, well cared for uh, outfit. So, um, but we can't see that this morning, but we can imagine it, how well you looked and how valiant you looked in the, uh, in the time that you served. There are a few that can still fit into their uniforms and do so every once in a while. But um, as I was thinking about a few words to say, I happened to come across an article written by an ex or yeah, an ex-Navy SEAL. I can't remember his last name, and I'm going to quote him, so I apologize. I just remember his first name was Jacko. Um, but I thought that is a that is a well put set of words right there to honor those that have served. And um, so if I'm just going to ask and I know it's awkward for you and you're not looking for praise and glory, but we do want to honor you. And I just ask that if you have served in our military, any branch over the years, if you are a veteran, that you would stand um, just for maybe a minute at the very most while I read these words. So who's uh, veterans among us? All right. Just I know it's awkward, but just hear these words. I know that they serve not for medals, for glory, but for a cause greater than themselves, freedom. I know that when our nation called, they answered. Generations of veterans have stepped up and held the line against evil in the world. And to that, I am eternally grateful. So to all of those brave souls that protected and continue to protect this beacon of light and freedom that we call America, I say simply, thank you. And that's our sentiments this morning. Thank you for your service. Amen. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 17 this morning, and you will remember in the first 13 verses of this gospel, uh, Matthew treated us to the account of the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus called not all 12, but just three of his closest, what we know of as the inner core. He called them to himself and he basically led the way up this high, high mountain. And it was on the top of this mountain that Jesus revealed himself in a way that he had never revealed himself to man to this point and never will again reveal himself in so much glory until he returns again. And on the top of this mountain, he transfigured into his glorious self. And you will recall that he took on flesh. He's in his glorious essence in the heavens, but he took on flesh. And Philippians tells us that he laid aside these, some of these powers and this glory, just voluntary chooses, chooses to stifle them, if you will. But just this one little short time, this one moment in, in history, the disciples select few get this glimpse of what he would look like in his glorified form. Timothy Keller puts it in these terms. He put his Superman cape back on. He was no longer the Clark Kent. 
But he put his Superman cape back on and the result was glory. The result was the only way that you can describe the, the, the incredible light was to say, the writers say it was like the sun. I mean, what else can we describe as the most luminous light known to man? And not only did his body emit this light, but even his clothes were white and glowing. And it was only because of the saving power of Christ that those three disciples did not die in the presence of a holy God. But they lived to tell about it. And we know about it today. However, the afterglow, if you will, of their heaven-like experience did not last long. As they came down the mountain. And just like Moses, when he came down the mountain, having glimpsed just a little bit, a portion of the glory of God, he came down that heaven-like experience into the hell-like earth that he lived in. He comes down to a group of people that are grumbling and idolatrous. These disciples come down the mountain to a desperate father. Of a demon possessed boy. And a failed attempt. At an exorcism. And that's our passage for this morning. And what we're going to find in this. In this morning's passage is an indictment. Of Jesus's disciples among other things. Of the littleness of their faith. Ye of little faith. What kind of faith did we walk into this building with this morning? What kind of faith do we have as believers? Is it big faith? Is it medium faith? Is it little faith? I pray that as a result of this passage, as we read God's holy word, that we would breathe it in and that it would change us. And that if our faith is small, whatever size it is, that it would grow today. So we are in Matthew chapter 17, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 21. Remember, they just came down the mountain. This is what they came into. And they came to the crowd. A man came to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly for often. He falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus Privately. And said. Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them. Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you. If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed. You will say to this mountain. Move from here to there. And it will move. And nothing will be impossible. For you. I've said this many times. 
But Jesus is at this point of his ministry. His ministry is very strategically timed. And he's at this point where primarily his ministry is to his closest disciples because he is training them to be the leaders of his people when he ascends back to the Father. And previously, he gave them a final exam of sorts when he said, but who do you say that I am? And they passed that exam. So they are in intensive training. And we get to find out, well, what's going on down the mountain? When we found out what happened on top of the mountain with the three, what were the other disciples doing? Well, they were engaged in life and ministry. And while the three were up there with their heaven-like experience, the others... A man comes to these disciples and he is desperate. He's desperate for relief. His son since birth, and I intermingled some of the accounts from the other gospels in here. So if you don't see it in here, but some of the gospels say from birth has been demon possessed. From birth, his life has been somewhat of a a nightmare. And not only does this boy, and I'm not sure how old he is. But not only does he have seizures, not only does he have fits, but when he has these fits, he wants to hurt himself. And and he wants to hurt himself because he is under the influence of evil. And that is a fruit of evil. He doesn't just fall and have seizures, but he falls near things that can destroy him. And so he falls. The father, he's describing the life that he's lived. My son has seizures. And when he's near a body of water, he'll fall into that and nearly drown. And in Capernaum, the geographical area there, of course, you know, there's lots of water in this area where this boy grew up. And if it wasn't the water, the father says, and then if there's fire, he throws himself into the fire with these seizures. And fires were very common in that day and age. It was their source of power, like our electricity. And they, they used them for light, and they used them to cook. And they, there was a fire going all the time. They used them to burn trash. The boy couldn't seem to, to get away from it. The evil influence in him was like a magnet to destruction. Whatever destructive device that this demon could find, the boy was lured so he wasn't just he wasn't just this is not just a medical thing. It is, it, it's a it's a spiritual sickness to the core. And because he was under the influence of this evil, yes, he was very, very self-destructive. And we know that that is a result. Thoughts of self-loathing, thoughts of wanting to harm ourselves. That's from. Evil does not come from God. Perhaps, perhaps his whole body had the scars that told the history of the fires that he'd thrown himself into. Perhaps he was even bandaged to some extent, even as the father pleads. But he was completely tormented and robbed of any kind of childhood Normalcy, and this is what we find in real life. This was not so uncommon in that day and age. 
of, of problems that families and parents had to face. And that's about all that we really know about the son other than where our imaginations could take us. Thinking about his personal suffering. But what we do know more of is, is, the, is the emotions of the father. He's the one that has come. He's the one that's demonstrating what's in his heart. His father is desperate. He's He's undone. He has chased his, this, this boy. He's chased his son around his whole life. Protecting him and guarding him. He, he no doubt watched the evil influence grow. Perhaps it became more and more destructive. As his son grew, he's watching this evil in his own flesh and blood, his own offspring. He's dealing with these thoughts. He's dealing with these emotions. His dreams have been shattered countless times. His love has been tested countless times. I'm sure his faith has been put on the the block, the testing block. His heart has ached so many times. It's a wonder he still has enough life in him to beg for mercy. Some versions of this account say that This was his only boy, his only son. And so here is a father, his only son, standing at the mercies of the only son of God. Jesus Christ. Have you ever been a desperate father? Have you ever been a desperate parent for your child? It's a grueling thing. It's an ache. That is almost indescribable and you want more than anything. Sometimes even something as simple as a sore throat. You want you want more than anything to go in there and save your child and relieve them of that pain. It is so hard for a parent to watch their children suffer. And yet there are times as big as our hearts are and as filled with love as they are. Toward our children that love and our powers are not enough to bring the relief that we would like to bring to our children. Even fatherly powers, as fierce and protective as we can be, always with the watchful eye, have limitations. So what do you do? Well, I think in this scene we are actually, yeah, we're treated to... The real life misery and challenges of a family. But we are not just treated to that. We are treated to one of the purest scenes of a form of worship that there can be in this lifetime. Desperation. When turned to God. Becomes one of the sweetest forms of worship. Why? Because when we get to this place of desperation, we realize that we are empty. We realize that we have nothing. Whatever we had did not work. And we are what Jesus is making us, according to the Beatitudes in Matthew 7, poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? They're the ones that are blessed. They're the ones that see God. 
They're the ones with the inheritance. What does it mean to be poor but beggarly? It's when we realize that in and of ourselves, we have nothing to offer God. We have nothing but need. And so he, his body symbolizes the condition of his heart. He lowers himself. Matthew says he comes, he's on his knees. He's scraping the ground, symbolizing how his heart and his emotions have just been dragging the ground all of these years with the son that he loves. Dragging the ground with all the disappointments and all the crises that he has faced. Have you ever come to God like that? And he asks for mercy. It's a tough scene, but it's a beautiful scene. He doesn't say, you know, I've lived miserable for five years or ten years or fifteen years. And you owe me. No parent deserves this. You owe me. He doesn't say that. He's just. He's at his end. Makes no claims. He just knows that maybe he's heard of Jesus's healing powers. Maybe he's witnessed something. He just sees a glimmer of hope and he has a glimmer of faith. And he sees Jesus as his only option. And so he throws himself at his mercy and he just puts his faith. I don't know if you're going to do it or not. I don't my fate is in your hands. Whatever you see is best. That's what I want. It's 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 brutal in one sense. To feel so powerless. To feel so powerless over your life or over the ones that you love so dearly. And yet this is sometimes a place that we find ourselves in. I know there's people in this room that have found themselves in this kind of place with a loved one. And what parent wouldn't gladly bear the pain of a child just so that they could live in wholeness? I know that also in this scene that it might seem dramatic in our day and age. And we, we're not used to seeing this kind of demon possession today as it was in that day. But don't think that children are any less tormented by evil. They just have different struggles today and evil is just as pervasive today as it was in that day. It's just the enemy. He doesn't always use. He's got lots of tricks in his bag. He doesn't always use the same one. So it's so predictable. And when you don't have to be so out there and blatant, he can take a culture and people's hearts and minds and persuade them to create a culture of torment that just seems normal. And what do we have but a culture of young people who are tormented in the sense of it's so important that they're liked. It's so important that they're accepted. that They bring harm to themselves if they're not. They load themselves if they're not. That's the kind of culture that we have. That's what our young people have to deal with in this day and age. All these pressures that are culture. You got you got to do this just right. And you got to behave like this or you got to think like this or you, you got you just have to conform to the culture or you're not going to make it. You're going to be chewed up and spit out and all the decisions that society pushes on them and it takes its toll. Ah, it's not like this in the scripture. It's a different form of evil. 
And it does take its toll. In March, I read this article, USA Today, the suicide rate for white children and teens between 10 and 17 was up 70 percent. Between 2006 and 2016, 10 years. A study of pediatric hospitals released last May found admissions of patients ages 5 5. That's where they started, 5 to 17 for suicidal thoughts and actions more than doubled from 2018 to 2015. The group at highest risk for suicide are white males between 14 and 21. Yes, evil is still well and alive and, and glad to infiltrate any heart, any mind, any family, any home, any culture that will embrace it. But parents' powers are limited. And as powerful as they are, and parental powers are incredible, God designed them that way. I mean, the influence that parents have in this world and on their children are absolutely astounding, but they are not always enough. And so this father knows this. And so he takes his case and he lays it before the master's feet for him to decide. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes the demon with a word. And this boy that has never experienced wholeness, has never experienced this kind of peace and freedom. Jesus, the son of God, speaks and he rebukes the demon. And as deep as his roots were and as long as they were there, they are gone. Gone. Because the power of Christ's word. He is the king that Matthew has been making him out to be. And recording the acts. That's why we love him. That's why we're here this morning. Because he has power over the things that we do not have power. And we over and we are well aware of our limitations. And they're not just physical. And they're not just spiritual. They're also the limitations of how holy we can be. We need Christ in every area of our life. And so what he does is he just speaks into this hopeless situation and he's doing what he came to do. He's restoring the broken, all the poor and powerless. We sang he's restoring things and it's the already not yet. It's not complete. There are still things that there are still situations like this. There are still people in bondage. There are still people hurting and it'll be that way until he comes again. But he is restoring. And so you have testimonies alongside of the darkness, you have testimonies of where the light has broken through. And we will continue to see these testimonies because God's real. And because Christ is on a mission and he does not fail. And he has a heart to see restoration. And he designed the family and he has a heart to see it whole. And a heart to see it well. And this eternal word, this powerful word, changed this family's life just like that. And it didn't stop. The powerful effect continued on and on and on. And so not only was it a special day for this boy, but think about the father's heart. His son has been set free. And no more does he have to position himself between the water and my son or between there's fire. and There's my son. Now they can just walk side by side. In peace 
and harmony and all those shattered dreams just came back. I would imagine as a father, he's thinking about ah, my son passing down the, fa- the, the family name. My son, now he can pick up the trade and follow in my footsteps. My son, now we can sit down and have a heart to heart and I can look him right in the eye and actually see a person in there. And we can connect like I always wanted to do. My son, what a beautiful thing. What the locusts have eaten, God can restore and longs to do so. You see, the kingdom of God is at hand, right? John the Baptist said it. He warned the world. The kingdom of God is at hand. Things are going to change. Well, here's something that changed for the better. The kingdom of God is at hand. So, why wasn't it at the hand of the disciples? What happened? We know what Jesus can do. Why was it not at the disciples' hand? Why couldn't they do it? And what does this mean for, for disciples? What does this mean for the future of the church? When, when Jesus' disciples can't carry out the work that he started. Jesus says to the whole crowd in verse 17, Oh, faithless and twisted generation. This is his commentary. This is what he's thinking. If you were wondering, well, what's going on in his head after he rebuked this? Faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. He addresses the whole crowd. Not just the father. He uses as a teaching moment. And he's teaching his disciples, of course. Of course, when he's in private, then the disciples get him. You know, they're not going to say this in public. What I do wrong? They get him in private to do that. But first he speaks to the populace at large. And he calls them a faithless and twisted generation. Faithless means, of course, not to believe in God, but it has the idea of refusing to believe it's God in God. It's not just like, um, well, I don't even know that he exists. It's that, oh, I know he's there and I'm not believing in him. I'm not falling for that or I am refusing to believe in God. It's that kind of faithlessness. And twisted, of course, is, is something that's been contorted or bent, moved out from its original shape. And so he's looking at these people and he's saying, you're twisted. You're twisted because you don't have faith in me. And you've given your mind into your own hands. And I'm the only one that thinks straight. And I'm the only one that thinks clearly. And I'm the only one that always speaks truthfully. And you've denied me and you've refused me. And so now you're just left to the wiles of your own mind and imagination. And you're not getting it right. Your influence, the whole culture was like that. God's people were like that. When God sent his son into that culture there. And that's his commentary. And they're so blind in one sense and they have refused him that they don't even know how sick they are. Of course, the same commentary could be spoken about many cultures around our world, could it not? 
when we refuse to embrace the truths of God and understand life as he created it and designed it, we come up with all kinds of crazy things and ideas have consequences. And they are harmful. We're, we're facing this stuff in our generation, in our great nation. As our minds pull away from God, this, we're, we're going to come up with all these techniques of dealing with the hurts and pains of people, and they're going to be hurtful. They're going to make a bigger mess. We just run from one bad place to another with all the evils. It's interesting, I think we get a little bit of a rare glimpse of Jesus' heart in this passage, and he doesn't reveal himself in this way very often. But as he looks at the crowds and he sees the refusal, and he sees the, the perverted Thinking and conclusions, problem solving. It's like all of a sudden he gets this wave of exhaustion. How much longer do I have to endure you? How much longer do I have to be exposed to this perversion and this darkness and this lostness? It makes me wonder, I mean, he... He just had this moment up on the mountain where he was allowed to be the God that he is, the glorious God. And then he comes back down into fallen humanity and and you get this little glimpse of, you know, it's taxing and he never he he never acts on it. He's never not self-controlled. He's never not merciful. He's never not compassionate. He always does the right thing, but he's feeling the darkness of the world. He's feeling the the problems. It makes me wonder if he's not longing. He's longing for the day when he gets to go back. And then the day to follow when he brings all of the world with him. So that all all of the problems are gone. What about his... Disciples. What happens in this uh, this little private conversation? You ever ask God? You ever done try to do something mighty for God and it just failed? And you're like, uh, wait a minute! I thought I did everything right. Isn't this how it works? So they privately ask him, uh, "What happened here?" And he says. You have little faith. That's the problem. Your faith isn't big enough to tackle that kind of task. So we want to ask ourselves, well, wait a minute. Well, the disciples didn't fit into the description of of faithless and twisted. No, they do have faith, but the faith they have was little, Jesus said. So what does it mean to have little faith? And what are the results of a little faith? And I think a good question to ask is, how many things don't happen in the kingdom of God because of little faith? I mean, there was something that could have happened and didn't. A deliverance moment that could have happened and didn't because of little faith. So what's Jesus teaching us here? The well, first thing we want to understand is this is not something that they came up with their own on their own and they they decided on their own. We're going to 
We're going to heal people supernaturally and we're going to drive demons out of people. We're going to do this. They're doing this because they were commissioned to do this previously in Matthew. We already read that. He sent them out to heal and to cast out demons and to preach the word of God. So they were already commissioned and they were already empowered. They had the permission and the power to do this. But their faith in the person of Christ that gave them that and the promise that gave them that was weak and it hindered them from accomplishing the very thing that they were empowered to do. There was a disconnect. They had the promise, they had the power, but the faith in that person who gave the promise was weak. That's what Jesus is saying. They didn't come up with this on their own. They didn't say, oh, I know what it was. It was my weak faith. Ah, get it better next time. Jesus is revealing their hearts. Jesus has already used this phrase four times. So let's look at these four times that he used it to try to get an understanding of what little faith means, because it may not mean what we're thinking in our minds that it means. Well, he used it in Matthew 5 when he was on the Sermon of the Mount, when he was talking about how anxious people get over their provisions, what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear. And he says, how much more will you be clothed, you of little Faith. In other words, God's going to provide for you. You don't have to be fretting over this. And the reason you're fretting is because you don't have faith in God. And the idea was that, you know, as long as I've uh, I've got my um, my gift certificates to McDonald's, I got a whole handful of them and my pantry's full and I got a freezer full of food. My faith in God is so strong. I believe in God. But you take those things away and that so-called belief turns into fear and doubt and anxiety. Another example that he gave us was in Matthew 8, all along the way. He says, um, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And he says this to his disciples there in the boat. The storm came. Remember that story? The storm came and the disciples fear For the life, because of the winds, Jesus rises up. He rebukes the winds. He calms the sea again with that powerful mouth of his. And it was this great calm. See, when things aren't easy and the storms aren't there and and the seas or the lake, it's, it's calm. They felt safe and secure like their faith was intact and and big and strong and protecting them. But as soon as the storm came, Jesus says, uh, your faith is too small. Matthew 14, again, again, uh, Peter, this is when Peter's walking on the water. You know that story. And he begins to sink. Verse 31, 14, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt his faith got him out of the boat but as soon as he saw a little bit of trouble a little uh, some obstacles and some danger to things that he holds dear he begins to sink it's small faith and then matthew 16 8 jesus aware of this said oh you of little faith why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread 
Did you not perceive the five and remember the five loaves? So this is when they're in a different place. Jesus has already fed the 5,000 when there was nothing there to feed them. It's going to happen again. He's got the crowds. His disciples are there. Uh Uh-oh, it's getting late. We don't have any food. And they are, Jesus is calling them out and he's saying, look, I did it once. And you're all twisted up and anxious inside because you don't believe I can do it again. That's little faith. So these, and this is the fifth time in our passage this morning. So what is maybe a common thread of what Jesus means when he's talking about little faith in these passages? Well, in all of these examples, really things were going well, right? When you have food in the pantry or there's no storms coming your way, there's no tests, there's no trials, things are going well. And the disciples assumed that that meant, man, my my walk with God is tight. And I'm really, really believing in God. I mean, this is great. But as soon as some kind of obstacle or hindrance came into their lives, they were indicted for not having big faith. So the idea is that when we face things that are a challenge to us, that determines sometimes what kind of faith we have or how big or how small it is. As soon as we face something, we're, we're afraid. Oh, I'm going to sink. Here I am. You called me out on the water. Now I'm going to sink. What happened? Took our eyes off of God. We weren't trusting. Our faith wasn't as big. Our comfortable circumstances are sometimes mistaken as strong faith in God. And that's how it works. And of course, lack of faith is filled with dear, uh, doubt and fear and anxiety. That comes in to replace it. So when we... When we feel out of control, see, we think that we're in control when we have everything we want, but when we feel out of control, we bail, we quit. And in this context, faith is the ability to believe in God even without the sight or having control of human resources. So little faith believes in God when you have something in your hand, but big faith believes in God when... The pantry's empty. It's the same. I'm trusting the same God. See, I thought I trusted him when my pantry was full, but now that it's empty, ah, hello. You see how these tests can change things? Little faith believes God's when the the sea is calm, but uh, big faith believes God in the midst of the storms when the winds are howling and the waves are roaring. Big faith doesn't quit. Big faith believes God even when our our stomachs are growling or our gas tanks are empty or our checkbooks are on zero. We're down to our last loaf of bread or when the sun goes down. Big faith says, I don't have to be able to see it. I don't have to be able to touch it. I don't have to have it in my possession. I know The same God that puts it there will provide as he sees fit. I don't have to be in control and it doesn't have to go easy for me. It's interesting. In all of these examples previously where the disciples failed, Jesus steps up to the plate and just solves the problem. But in this instance, he's still up on the mountain and they're like, this is awkward. What do we do? I mean, this guy came to us for deliverance. And where's, how much longer is he going to be? Jesus is training and 
testing. So what we find here, if we think about easiness versus hardship, is that when it, even when it comes to ministry, everything that you need isn't just going to come the first time you ask. Everything that you want to happen, every God-given desire or promise isn't just going to happen the first time you ask, right? Jesus has already said in other areas, this kind takes prayer and fasting. So now we learn that the whole idea of ministry and the way God brings his kingdom, as wonderful as it would be where I could just say something and it just happened, it doesn't always work that way. It takes takes grit. It takes resolve to bring God's kingdom to pass, to have these kind of ministry opportunities. It doesn't always happen the first time. Now, I think it's interesting. I know from my experience in the faith that um, God is gracious and merciful and he has such mercy on the new little lambs. And I remember when I first became a believer, I'll be honest with you, my life was just incredible. I mean, I'd pray for something and to show, I think to solidify my weak faith and God would, would show me how big and powerful it is. I'd pray for something and it would happen. I mean, I'd ask for deliverance and it would happen. I was like, man, this thing, this Christian walk is great. You just, you just tell God what you need and he sees it and he's compassionate, he's generous and he's merciful. And all these things were fall. I need deliverance from this or I got brokenness here. I want this to be healed. I want to get a chance to, to renew this. And all this stuff was happening. And then all of a sudden there came some kind of transition where um, I was praying or asking for things, the desires of my heart. And it's like, hello. Uh, there was a transition that um, God took this little lamb and started putting them on his own feet and stopped carrying them because that's just one side of it. To build faith, he uses these things to build faith, but that's a faith that hadn't even been tested. That's not real life. Real life is we are in a battle. Real life is we are going to face brick walls. In our lives, in the lives of our family, in our marriages, in this culture, everything that we know. And we have to be tough as disciples. And so Jesus is toughening them up. You just don't get to pray at one time. You don't just get to rebuke at one time. You don't get to just fast one meal. Sometimes you got to go. Strong and hard and long and persevere. And then, then it comes. God works like that. And we don't want to be found with little faith. And then we get into this whole idea of the mustard seed. What does he mean by this? I think that uh, this passage has been misunderstood through the years in some ways, maybe. Because if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. What is he teaching? What does he mean by that? Well, we have often taken it to mean all you need is this teeny little faith because that's what all mustard seed is. You can't even hardly see it. You drop it and you don't even know where it went. So if you just have that nearly unseeable faith, you can move a mountain. Is that what Jesus is saying? Because the, the little, this little teeny faith that they had didn't move any mountain. It couldn't even deliver a, a demon-possessed boy. What is it about the, the, the mustard seed that the Bible teaches is that, yeah, it starts out small, but it grows. 
It's the parable of the kingdom. Yeah, it starts out teeny, but guess what? It's going to grow. It's going to grow. And so the idea is that our faith, yeah, it starts out small, but it's going to grow. It's what it's what growing faith can accomplish. It's what mature faith can accomplish in the kingdom. It's not an invitation to stay small in our faith. The disciples need to increase their faith. You know, moving mountains is, in, is actually in, in that day and age, and we use it today, too. It's an idiom. It's a figure of speech. It's the ability to move obstacles out of the way. Man, you move that thing out of the way. And sometimes to get the big stumps out of, out of our lives that have the roots there or they're just really stubborn, it takes big faith. Time after time after time of prayer and wrestling with God and doing the right thing and not giving up and not... Growing tired because in this kingdom there are the hardest of tasks, but they are possible to overcome because the kingdom is at hand, and that is the good news. I want to close with this little example of John MacArthur. He says, More than half a century ago, George Mueller. Prince of intercessors began to pray for a group of five friends. Five. So after five years, one of them came to Christ. Took five years of prayer. After ten years, two more of them came to Christ. Now he's faithfully praying. He prayed for 25 years and the fourth man was saved. And for the fifth, he prayed until the time of his death. And that fifth friend came to Christ a few months after George Mueller died. For that fifth friend, he prayed 52 years. Doesn't always happen the first time. That's perseverance, perseverance, perseverance. If God's promised it, if that's what God wants, you just keep going for it. You just keep praying for it. Don't bail, because when we bail, we miss the power of God. So we get back to that question, how many things have not happened that could have happened? Because we have small faith. God, teach us this lesson this morning. You know, in our culture, small faith, the, the fruit is not as accessible as it was in ministry 10 years ago. We need to be tough. We need to have a kingdom mindset and have that resolve. God, grant us faith, grant us persistence, grant us a hunger to see the kingdom brought about. And let us Get on our knees and pray for the power and the mercy of God to fulfill his task in our lives and in the lives of our family. And in this tough time that Christ has strategically placed us in this tough battlefield. May God be exalted in our faith. And may he bless the preaching of his word.